Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I hope you're doing well. So Colin Flaherty, you may have heard the name floating around these interwebs. He is an award-winning writer. His work has been published in more than 1,000 places around the globe, including the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Boston Globe, Miami Herald, Washington Post, Bloomberg Business Week, Time Magazine, and others. He is the author of the Amazon number one bestseller, White Girl Bleed a Lot, and also Don't Make the Black Kids Angry. We'll put the links to those below, thank you so much, Colin, for taking the time today. Oh, it's great to be here. I'm a big fan of yours. Thank you. So an honest conversation about race. This is something that I have been encouraged to participate in my whole life. And uh, it's hard not to get the feeling sometimes that it's a little bit of a trap. In other words, if your honest conversation about race doesn't fall along the sort of mainstream media narrative, which is that almost all the problems in the black community are the result of endless intergalactic white racism, well, then you've just got it wrong. So it's not really an invitation to a conversation so much as it is an invitation to a self-flagellation that I think arguably and statistically is not exactly helping the black community. So what is your approach? How did it come about? And what makes it different from what most people talk about an honest conversation about race? You know, when Eric, when Eric Holder said, uh, we're a nation of cowards when it comes to race, I don't think a lot of people really understood what he meant because what he, un- what he meant was what you just said, which is you, Colin, have to be honest enough to admit that you are racist. Now, in the biggest book, one of the biggest books in the education field is called Courageous Conversations. The same thing. You have to, you teacher, you white teacher have to be honest enough to admit your racism has screwed up a generation of black students and created this enormous disparity. And so everything is top, everything is topsy turvy on this topic. You know, when it comes to talking to race, that's why, you know, I enjoy your stuff on it. And, you know, we're just, trying to be truth tellers out here and without racism, without rancor, but also without apology. Well, and I think that it could be said that, that one of the problems with society as a whole, and I would sort of argue more around the liberal media is that there is a kind of racism against blacks and the racism against blacks and, and whites as a whole is shielding people from facts. I mean, certainly the antidote to all forms of bigotry must be factual information because bigotry is denial of the facts in preference of a personal narrative that's usually pejorative to some group. So surely having an honest conversation about race, we must first bring facts to the table so that we can differentiate bigotry from empiricism. Uh, I, I, I probably once a day I hear the expression racist facts and, um, you know, for when, when I talk to people about this, I don't even talk that much about it. I just kind of say, did you see this? Did you read that? Did you hear about that? I don't try to explain it. I don't try to offer causes or solutions. I just say there's something really bad going on out there. And to me, when people really get into granular about, you know, well, we call them, we got to explain this thing. It's like, that's usually a deflection because then somebody wants to go back to 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. So my whole thing is, really demonstrating to people beyond a re- beyond any doubt using video using you know whatever that there's something really really wrong and out of proportion with black violence and black crime in this country and also demonstrate how the reporters are ignoring denying condoning excusing encouraging and even lying about it it's so yeah you know it's it's amazing i mean what's the expression the bigotry of soft expectations and uh man i see that every day i'm just surprised more people aren't I mean when I see Hillary uh, Hillary Clinton there's Hillary just the other day she said white people have to 
We'll have to learn how to listen to black people better. Okay, so I'm sitting here going, oh, okay, that's dumb. But if I were a black person sitting in the audience, I'd be saying, really? I need Hillary Clinton to stand up for me? Really? That's where we are now. I mean, I am just this helpless little waif waiting for the goddess of democratic politics, Hillary, to come along and take care of me. I mean, it's isn't it kind of ridiculous? Well, and given the amount of dysfunction in certain sections of the black community in America, I would sort of argue that they may have slightly higher priorities than whether white people listen to them or not. And, and to, there sort of seems to be two layers that, that you work in, work in in terms of ex- explicating the violence that's, that's going on. And first, of course, which I think a lot of people are aware of, there is an enormous amount of violence within the black community, black on black violence. And there's some level of comfort talking about that. Not that anybody likes to talk about it, but there's some level of accessibility to that information because that can be blamed on white racism. But the problem is, and I think this is where you uh, do the work that is the most powerful. The problem is that when you start talking about black on white violence, well, that really gets dangerously close to the third rail of challenging the narrative because black on white violence if it is as you i think have sometimes referred to it in epidemic proportions that's tough to say well that's just the result of white racism because that of course if there's an epidemic of black on white violence that may be some reason why whites can be a little jumpy i think everybody understands that violence is uh it, it, it is completely unacceptable in a for anybody with aspirations of living in a civilized society. That's why it's so troubling to see all this violence that is so easily shuffled off, so easily explained, so easily ignored. People even lie about it. And I, I, I don't think it's, you know, to use maybe an academic expression, I don't, think it's, uh, uh, I don't think it's a sustainable model to have all this violence and people ignoring it. So let's start uh, delving into some of the... Um the facts that, that are not uh, brought forward in the mainstream media. What are the major um, areas of crime and issues around criminality that you feel really deserve their day in the sun? Well, there's a lot, so many, th- there's so many things. I mean, if you, t- I mean, the We've biggest got time. Th- yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, it's funny when I were, when I started writing my books, both times my publisher said, uh, well, Colin, do, do you think we need more statistics in there? I always say no because the statistics are so far out of whack. White versus black crime versus you – know, you compare black on white versus white on black. It's 10, 50, 100, 1,000 times difference. And so I don't, I don't know what the point is of having a long discussion with some liberal about whether this assault, black on white assault is greater than white on black assault. Is it nine times greater or 10 times? It's like totally out of, out of proportion. And so – And so I really focus on uh, not the statistics, but I focus on the stories. I focus on the actual happenings. There's an enormous amount of black on senior violence out there, black on old people violence. There's an enormous amount of black on gay violence. And, and, And these reporters, when they look in the camera, they just keep looking at and they keep doing these stories and they keep, they, it's like, they've never heard of this before. I'll tell you one thing these reporters don't get enough credit for. They're dramatic skills. I mean, there are Oscar winners out there. So what are the what, – what does the data say, the sort of government-supplied data say about black and white violence and its relationship to white and black violence? 
okay, it's depending on where you live, depending on what crime you're talking about, five, 10, 15, pick a number, you know, a thousand times greater one, one than the other. But here's the thing, as bad as the data is, as, as wide as the gap is, the real numbers are worse because you talk about uh, stitches for snitches, talk about witness intimidation. You talk about Bronx juries where a jury, uh, a black jury tends not to convict the black defendant. You talk, I document all this stuff in all my books. Uh, you talk like uh, you talk about how black people do not report crime. You know, there's a, there's a device called the shot spotter. It's an audio device you put on like telephone poles. So when they hear a, hear a gunshot, it goes to 911 immediately and they can get cars there. Well, they put up a shot spotter in a, in a black neighborhood in Oakland, California, and uh, they figured out that 90% of the gunshots were not being reported. So the crime, I mean, we, all, we, we know that half the crime, half the violent crime in America is not reported anyway, and that number is growing. But what else is growing are the number of people the reason why they don't report it, it's not, it's, it, people don't report it because they feel the cops won't do anything about it. I'll tell you something, that's, that's, I, w- I was out to dinner last night with some cops. Sometimes people, they drive up and down the Easter seaboard and these cops were going by. They called me and, and they go, Colin, we're in the neighborhood. Okay, let's go. Let's have dinner. So the one, you know, the one takeaway from talking to cops is cops, they, what keeps the cops up at night is they're worried that people like you and I don't have any idea how bad it is, what they see every day. So they're not worried about the numbers. They're, they, you know, they're, they're, they're worried about this unbelievable level of chaos and mayhem and violence and sometimes murder that they see all the time that nobody is, that everybody's trying to just wish away. Well, and you, you've talked about the degree to which the mainstream media is kind of feverishly working overtime to hide the level of uh, black violence from the community as a whole. We can sort of speculate as to their motives, not that it's particularly relevant, but um, uh, you've also pointed out that if you know someone who's like a crazy liberal, who just, you know, at a dinner party, they just say the stuff that even the moderates are rolling their eyes at, that that's average, in the mainstream media, that's that's sort of the average template for. That's your average uh, reporter, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. your average reporter. So, how committed are they to this narrative of endlessly portraying black people as victims and white people as racist aggressors and suppressing any information to the contrary? Well, they're as just as committed as that guy at your Thanksgiving dinner table is into telling everybody that George McGovern should have been president in 1972. They're just totally shut down about it. I mean, you, I mean, in a lot of my books, I publish letters I get from reporters and, and you can't imagine. I mean, they're just as nasty as you can imagine. They call me names. They say, I don't know this. I'm making it all up. People write columns saying I'm making it all up. Guy in Albany, New York writes these cop. I mean, I do a lot of stuff, just all these towns nobody's ever heard of. I don't even do the big towns anymore unless it's something really bad. I don't even do that much on Detroit, Chicago, Philly, Baltimore, unless it's really bad. I'll do, I'll do Albany, Rochester, Syracuse, you know, North Carolina, Peoria, Springfield. And and even the reporters in these, I don't know what, I don't know what it is about these reporters that attracts them to this field. But, you know, I, I always think there's about, I don't know, 25, 30, 35% of the people that are just totally locked out of learning about what this is all about. So I'm not overly worried about them, but I think the people in the middle, there's been, a, there's a lot of people that have had extract personal experience with black crime, black violence, whether on themselves, whether on a family member. 
And, and, and I want them to know that you're not imagining this. This didn't just happen to you. This is happening all over the country, and uh, it's okay to talk about it. But I, I, I find, Stefan, a lot of people don't know how to talk about it. They, 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 they generalize. They stereotype. They use hypothetical situations. We have so many facts out there. And so my whole thing is, look, just get a video. Get a story and, and say the most powerful thing you could say to a, a denier. Did you see this? That's all. Let them right. explain. And, and what I find particularly frustrating <clears throat> about this is that, you know, like, like all good people, uh, I want to see all communities flourish and be peaceful and do well and have stable families and get educated and, and be successful. I think everybody wants that. And that was actually the trajectory of the black communities in America sort of post-Second World War up until about 1965. Not that, of course, that anything was perfect, but, you know, black incomes were rising. The black family was relatively stable. You had uh, illegitimacy at about 20% as opposed to the 73 or 74% that it's at now. You had lots of blacks coming into the middle class, getting better education and so on. And then in the 1960s, just things went kind of really haywire. And, uh, you know, arguably it's been uh, a real challenge, a mounting challenge in the black community to try and get back to the kind of um, bedrock stability and launch pad that they had in the post-war period. And that's what's so frustrating to me is looking at the, the what if or the could have been if different approaches had been taken. You know, there's a guy who writes for the Washington Post. I forget his name. But he, wrote, <clears throat> he wrote a book. Uh, won the Pulitzer in 2009. And the gist of the book was black people have been in slavery since 1980. And uh, I mean, this guy made documentaries. He's a big shot at the Washington Post. He was covering, he was covering, no, it was, no, he left the Wall Street Journal in 2012, I think. He was covering the national election for the Wall Street Journal. And you could see him writing all these articles about the Tea Party people being, you know, really nasty racist people. This is the Wall Street Journal. So if it's that bad at the Wall Street Journal, uh, how do, what do you think the rest of the paper is like? And, you know, I don't I try to stay away from the history thing. But what you said is so important because, yeah, if you look in the if you look on, the, you know, if you look at TV or movies, basically black people have been in chains and in slavery up until what, 10 minutes ago. And, you know, you hear about, you know, you hear about all these great examples of black families and black accomplishment from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and they're all shooed away. They're all, you know, and 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 they're and they're and they're marginalized when they were great accomplishments, and man, it's been nothing but a downward spiral since the '60s. Well, and you know, as far as the mainstream media goes, given that they're, it's, it's I'm tempted to say exclusively liberal or Democrat, but I guess we'll we'll settle for overwhelmingly liberal. And they, they love diversity except wherever they work, and then they don't want any <laughs> anyone not from the left. It's like that, and we want a monoculture of leftism preaching diversity towards everyone else. Different viewpoints are great unless they conflict with my ideological worldview, in which you know, case you, evil. You know what's weird? Okay, so this is weird. So the Washington Post ran a story. This about two months ago. A, a, a Marine, a decorated Marine, was assaulted by a large group of black people in Washington, D.C. on video. So the Washington Post took a cup. You know, this guy, believe it or not, if you go to Camp Pendleton or Camp Lejeune, I think in North Carolina, you can see a statue of this guy. He, he, he's because he's, you know, he's that famous. So he's assaulted on video post does a story. Hundreds, hundreds of readers went in there to say they didn't really believe this guy's story, even though it's on video, they didn't believe it because black people just don't go around attacking white people for no reason whatsoever. And so 
at some level, it's not just the reporters, right? I mean, there's a lot of people in de- dilute, denial and delusion about what's going on out there. And I, I don't know of any, I don't know of any more powerful way to reach them than just to say, look, show these videos over and over, new ones constantly we're getting every day and say, okay, you explain it. Tell me what's going on. Talk to a cop, talk to a bus driver, talk to a teacher. Well, and I, I remember one of the things that was floating around some time back, which I know you've dealt with in your books, Colin, was uh, this uh, polar bear hunting, the knockout game and so on. And there was this like <clears throat> war of narratives that was going on. And the war was this stuff keeps happening and other people saying isolated incident doesn't happen, not part of any pattern. And there was this real and then it just poof, just seemed to vanish. I guess the the it's not a pattern narrative one. But I remember just thinking, OK, well, there do seem to be some significant statistical and video evidence of this particular practice, which is sort of black youths going and randomly punching uh, white people for uh, fun and games. And then it just vanished. And, and that was one of the th- first things where I went, okay, well, that's, that's odd. That's odd. Was, uh, you've, of course, talked about this phenomenon quite a bit as well. Yeah, I wrote a book about it. I did a video, just, just one after another. A couple months ago, New Yorker magazine did a story about uh, – about Trump, and they shoehorned me into it, and they said that I was I was the one promoting the knockout game. I had made it all up, and I I convinced Fox News to come along into my little scheme, and they accused Trump of buying into it too. And then they said we went to a college professor. So they quoted this college professor who said, "I've been looking. I've never seen one example of the knockout game. It's a myth." And uh, you know, if you don't, if you define anything narrowly enough, you know, you can define it out of existence. And that's what he was doing. But I define the knockout game as anybody beating the hell out of somebody for the hell of it. It's a black thing in this country. Many of the targets are white, Asian, gay, young, old, whatever. It happens all the time. And it would be something that would be important to be aware of, because of course, the lack of information about this, not only is it harming the black community because this information needs to come out if, if you have a community that's in agony uh you you really you know you don't you don't take heroin to deal with a toothache you you try and get the problem solved uh, at some level so it really harms the black community but it also endangers other people who aren't necessarily aware of how dangerous certain neighborhoods can be you know i did exactly and i think that's why when i first started writing about this stuff i was writing mostly about media hypocrisy how they you know, enormous di- the enormous difference between what they said happened and what really happened using YouTube. But then people started writing me letters going, Colin, you're saving lives. Um, a, a good example of where we didn't save a life, of what you're just talking about, was two, two months ago, the conductor of the Baltimore Symphony, a white woman, she said, I'm glad we had the riots because that helped white people listen to black people because white people do not listen to black people. So I'm glad we got, you know, they got our attention. So I did a story. I did a video saying, what about this guy? Did he need to, you know, and this guy was a singer in a choral group that sang with the symphony, sang for this conductor. He was a white guy. He moved his family into a black neighborhood because he had nothing but love in his heart for all of God's creatures. And he thought he wanted to go show the black people how white people have nothing but love for all black people, not knowing for a minute not recognizing this enormous level of resentment, hostility, even hatred, often expressed in violence, black on white. He moved in. He, 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 he died. Soon. He was killed in a robbery soon after. And he didn't know the stuff that we're talking about. He was one of these people that locked it out. A, Chicago, a professor at Harvard calls it routine activity theory. A white person in a black neighborhood can routinely expect to be the victim 
of violence, like the way one judge compared it to putting a person in a lion's cage at the zoo. So there's a lot of people out there, the, the gentrifi- gentrification crowd, they put their lives in danger. I mean, I've had this experience myself. I was at a wedding a few years ago and um, when I was living in San Diego. And I met somebody who used to be my next door neighbor. I mean, they I moved in and they had moved out a month before. So we're going, oh, yeah, yeah. It was, you know, it was kind of a nice neighborhood of, of San Diego called Kensington. I said, where'd you move to? He goes, I just moved to Golden Hill. Golden Hill is a black a, a black and dangerous neighborhood of San Diego. I said, why'd you do that? He goes, well, I want my kid to get some more diversification. I swear, I felt like grabbing him by the lapels and slapping him, saying, are you idiot? You have a family. You're putting them at risk. Of course, the punchline of the story is six months later, his wife is out jogging through their gentrified neighborhood at 5 a.m. and is almost killed by a group of black people. I don't really care. Stefan, if you or I do whatever we feel like doing stupid things with our own lives, but when you start involving your family and your stupid plans, um, you know, that, 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 that I will call people out on that. Right. And it is, of course, extremely disempowering to the black community to say that all of their problems result from institutional, intransigent, unconscious, often white racism, that their, their, their entire opportunities and neighborhoods and, and uh, quality of their relationships, stability of their marriages, educational and job opportunities are all controlled from outside by this nefarious, ghostly cabal of, of white racism that does disempower uh, blacks who were, as I said before, doing a lot better when I mean, they had more racism, actual racism to deal with in the post-war period, and they were doing much better because I think there's this overwhelming physics of white racism that black people are are supposedly held back by that does paralyze and becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, you can't make it because white people hate you. Well, I guess you're not going to make it then if you truly believe that. And it becomes a self-feeding cycle of, uh, you know, falsehoods, misrepresentation, resentment, impotence, followed by rage and often attack. Stefan, I w- I'm wondering at what point do, do all of us stop referring to this fictitious thing called a black community? Because I'm one of these people that, you know, I don't even know what a community is. I try, I look somebody when they're in front of me, I, I try to look them in the eye and take them as I find them. I want them to do the same for me. And this whole, this whole, you know, this, this, this whole black community thing, it's really a collective, collectivist impulse, right? Mm-hmm. And we see all the, all the negative uh, all, all, all the negative effects of collectivism, socialism, whatever you want to call it, in there. I mean, the idea that you're living in this kind of community and you're just sitting there waiting for some person like Hillary Clinton to come down and tap you on the head and give you a job and a life. God, how could how could that be more? How could that be more dilute? What a delusional impulse that is. So. We've talked a little bit about blacks and whites, but of course, the bichromatic rainbow of American race hysteria is not necessarily just confined to, to, to blacks and whites. You've talked about Philadelphia, uh, Asian students in the public schools, and uh, you had mentioned the sort of years of racial abuse at the hands of black students. I don't know if you recall this. It's always tough oh, to of ask course. authors. Yeah, perhaps no. you'd like to talk a little bit about how that played out. You know, black on Asian violence is something that's happening all over the country. So let's talk about, we can, let's talk really, I'll just go through a couple. In Philadelphia, uh, I, I opened, this was a couple of years ago, I wrote about it, and don't make the black white girl bleed a lot, opened up the newspaper, 13 Asian kids at South, South Philly High go, are going to the hospital. One day, emergency room. Apparently, they were beating up themselves. Anybody who lives in this region knows South Philadelphia is a black neighborhood, gentrifying now, but South Philly is a black school. You look through all the coverage, 
And everybody's going, well, I can't figure out why all these Asian kids are being assaulted every day. Well, it was years of daily black on Asian violence at the kids. They finally went on strike and there was finally, you know, finally the superintendent got involved. Then she kind of whispered to a reporter. She said, the Asian kids are, are provoking the black people here. And she gave the Asian students a flyer, how to behave so you will not antagonize the black students. You know, you move up to Rochester. Five years ago, they start taking in uh, uh, Asian refugees from Nepal. The minute these 5,000 refugees got off the plane, every they put, of course, this happens all over the country. They take the refugees, Catholic charities, put them in the middle of the ghetto in the black neighborhood. As soon as they move in, the minute they move in, there are victims of harassment, taunting, threats, violence, murder. This went on for five years till a few months ago, the local Rochester newspaper did a story. They spent half the article kind of apologizing for the fact that you know, these Asians are under attack and uh, sorry to kind of mention this to everybody, but it, it's all black people doing nothing but attacking Asian people. This is in Rochester, another, another, another small town that is a center of black violence. In San Francisco, the black on Asian violence is so bad, they had, the, the, the local newspaper was forced to call it San Francisco's dirty little secret. Black on Asian, anybody with a business, you know, you know the, some of the most beleaguered people in, Amer- in this country, Stefan, are the are the small shopkeepers in black neighborhoods near black neighborhoods? They're, they're they're Korean, they're Chinese, they're maybe from India or Pakistan. Oh, man, these guys are beleaguered by daily episodes of ta- racial taunting, racial violence, racial threats, and and, and oh yeah, and 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 and, and, and robbery and murder. I mean, I document this a ton. Well, and you may just think of the uh, the little um, I think he was an Indian fellow who was roughed up by Michael Brown before the events of that day unfolded. Perfect. You know, you know that Michael Brown thing, there was one thing I haven't heard many people talk about. Do you remember, can you think of another time in the history of American journalism when we had journalists, even on Fox News, Dana Perina said this on Fox News. She said, we should not have released the video of Michael Brown roughing up that guy. We had journalists all over America going, no, I don't think we should have released that video. Can you think of another? You know, the only other example is when that uh, reporter, I think it was in Virginia. Remember the reporter who shot his two former colleagues about a year ago? He did a manifesto. He gave it to the ABC affiliate in, 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 in his hometown. And they haven't released that either. So it's like And they won't because I assume it's uh, it's a anti-white racialist manifesto oh, yeah, exactly. and therefore yeah. they won't release it. Yeah. yeah, and it's exactly the same as with like we wouldn't we shouldn't have never have seen the Michael Brown video of him and with in that store that was so that was so revealing. But I mean, from my perspective, it's it's hard to miss why that video was released because the cops were afraid of the escalating protests and aggressions and riots that were going on in the community. So they released the video to say, here's what happened right before. They had to counter the gentle giant narrative because that was going to put cops' lives in danger. Now, here's the crazy thing. Did anybody care? No. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think it gave, it gave people with remnants of objectivity something to make them stop this sort of general pitchforks and, you know, um, sort of going on uh, in, in the media and in the press. It gave, it gave, I say, some slight, maybe a slight speed bump. Maybe it was a big truck with big wheels, but a little bit of a speed bump. It took the Washington Post almost a year 
to report that the hands up, don't shoot narrative should get four Pinocchios in their lie of the year contest. Um, But even so, long after that video came out, long after we knew everything about that was everything they said, point for point, was the opposite of what they said. I mean, you have 100 staffers on Capitol Hill raising their hands in the don't shoot narrative. The Washington Post photographers can't get enough photos. And, you know, I'm not asking everybody to inflict, inject race into every single story they do. But I am asking people, reporters, to ask one question of these clowns that spread these Okay, we'll call them false narratives. That's a polite word for saying lie. Uh, spreading these false narratives. You say, really? Can you tell me more about that? Really? So Michael Jan- Michael Brown was a victim. Really? And it's yeah, funny. These, these you know, lies are so tissue thin, they evaporate. Well, so tissue thin for people who are based on reason and evidence. For other people, it just, you know, they hear the narrative and it just, it plants in them. Uh, and it just flowers regardless of, of sort of the information that comes out afterwards. We saw that with uh, Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman. Uh, we've seen that with Freddie Gray. We've seen that with other things where the narrative sort of takes flight with full media participation. And, you know, it's like that old statement uh, that uh, a lie can go halfway around the world while the truth is still getting yeah, its boots yeah. on. That's why, um, you know, so I, I've written a, a, a couple of books. I write a lot of articles. I spend more time on YouTube now, and that's why I think probably you're doing so well as, as, as well. Man, every day somebody goes, Colin, did you see that new stuff on, you know, a video? It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I saw it. Uh, but that's why the video is so powerful and why we can just say, keep saying to these people, like, can you explain this? Did you see this? Bike week. That's all I have to say. Black Bike Week. I wonder if you can help people step through that. Because, again, this is stuff that, that is going on that is very, very important and which people just don't have information about. Okay. Black Bike Week happens down in um, uh, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And it's not an organized thing. People just send out messages saying, hey, Memorial Day, let's head down to South Carolina. We're going to have this. And uh, almost every year, it's, it's a scenario of large-scale black mob violence mayhem chaos directed at at shopkeepers directed at each other directed at the locals it's held at the same time as usually held at black beach week which is in in miami beach and you know this weekend is uh this weekend uh, is black college week in virginia beach virginia now two years ago enormously at forty thousand black people r- rampaging through virginia beach since then and you know i call this racial profiling since then, on this weekend, the Virginia Beach police turned Virginia Beach into an armed camp, the same way they do in Miami Beach for Black Beach Week, the same way they do in Indianapolis for uh, Black Indianapolis Black Expo. Enormous, enormous scenes of large-scale black mob violence. And uh, it's funny, nobody wants to call it racial profiling, but it sure as heck is. And you know, the fun- interesting thing about Indianapolis, where they have this large-scale black mob violence during their so-called Black Expo, is couple weeks after they have the indianapolis 500 you know four or five hundred thousand people come to town the worst thing that happens is maybe they get a dui maybe somebody's a little rowdy in public they put a few people in the drunk tank kick them out later and you compare that to what happens with black beach uh with uh black expo and indy and it's the difference is enormous so they tried to ban motorcycle rallies uh, in the city where Black Bike Week was occurring, uh, the businesses, you know, who obviously mostly like to sell stuff, boarded themselves up uh, to try and sort of hide from the violence. The NAACP said that uh, banning 
motorcycle rallies with racial discrimination ensued to reverse this ban. And the businesses, you write, that closed during Black Bike Week were found to be guilty of racial discrimination. Um, and that, again, that's, I mean, businesses, you know, you, 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 the only color that businesses fundamentally like is green. And if they can make money off a particular situation, they mostly will. If they're boarding up and fleeing, it's because they can't make money and they're going to lose um, either property or, you know, maybe their bodily integrity in some form. And so there's this weird thing where, where there's this, uh, this narrative that, that, e- that businesses could make a fortune off Black Bike Week, but they just chose to board up and flee because they're that racist that they don't even want to make money. You know, isn't that hard to believe what you just said? That's why I was so careful about documenting everything, always do the videos. I mean, they took them to court and they forced them to stay open. And they forced them to subject their, I mean, in, 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 in Black Beach Week in Miami Beach, I mean, people are trashing restaurants. They're running out without paying the bill. They're attacking the wait staff. They're, uh, and I, I, I don't know any other way to describe it other than to say, you know, you know, there's really only one reply, one response to everything that you and I are talking about now. The response is white people do it too. Mm, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna ask about that because you know, white mass murderers and white rioting and all that. So. Uh, you, you, you'd only focus on black violence because you're stepping over the giant, I guess, appropriately colored Everest of white violence uh, and just focusing on this minuscule problem. And I keep waiting. You know, so you look, you know, right, a couple of weeks before Black Bike Week in South Carolina, they actually have they don't call it White Bike Week, but they could They have some kind of run to the sun that ends up in Myrtle Beach. Nothing happens. You know, just a couple of traffic tickets. That's it. No violence. I mean, Miami Beach does fine 51 weeks out of the year, except for that one week of Black Bike Week, Indianapolis. White people aren't doing this too. And that's the classic excuse. And, and, and there's too much evidence out there to, 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 to I mean, that's their, but that's the only thing they can say. So that's what they have to say. How is standardized testing Racist. I was just watching one of your videos this morning getting ready for the interview and you were talking about um, a school where the blacks are protesting because there is standardized testing, which apparently is bigoted. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's all, you know, uh, when Obama came in seven and a half years ago, one of the first things they did was they pretty much declared that if there's ever a disparity between white people and black people in schools, performance, discipline, uh, uh, behavior – that, there's only one reason for that. That is white racism. So they carried that over all, all, all the places. But the thing about Baltimore, what was weird, it was a week ago, 100 kids left class. They had a protest about the, they don't want to take these tests. And But but about in one of the videos, they kind of gave away the game because there's, all of a sudden they have an adult talking on one of the videos. And the adult comes in and goes, you know what? We're here because this is the one-year anniversary of the death of Freddie Gray. And Freddie Gray was let down by our educational system. So it's like, what? Where'd that come from? Freddie Gray was, you know, it was ridiculous. We now know the story of Freddie Gray, that he was just a guy looking for, you know, he was trying to win the lottery in the back of that, that paddy wagon. That's a racial term too, but anyway. <laughs> it is. Well, only, only if we assume that my ancestors and probably yours too were, were a race. But um, so when it comes to this foundational perspective, it, it usually comes from the left. Uh, which is that if there is any numerical discrepancy, it can only be the result of prejudice. 
only and forever. And this, of course, shows up in race, it shows up in gender, it shows up in a wide variety of other areas. If there's any discrepancy between male and female income, it must be the result of institutionalized, patriarchal, evil, cisgender scum, sexism on the part of men. And if there's any discrepancy in outcomes between particular ethnic groups, it must be the dominant ethnic group that is racist. And, you know, despite the fact that uh, East Asians in particular do much better in white societies than whites do, apparently whites are just, just racist, this foundational belief, you know, more blacks in prison must be racism. More blacks committing crimes must be racism. Fewer blacks graduating from high school must be racism. Fewer black families staying together must be racism. That foundational delusion, and it is a delusion because it's saying that there are no other factors other than what white people are doing. White people are somehow getting in between black uh, parents and and forcing them to not get, like throwing their bodies in between uh, like an Oreo to make sure that they don't get married and, and... this foundational thing seems to be relatively, like all ideology, seems to be relatively impervious to basic facts, that there are many, many other explanations to discrepancies in outcome other than this one right, white racism physics universe that the leftists seem to inhabit. You, you know that you just described uh, uh, very well critical race theory. Critical race theory says black people are relentless victims of relentless white racism all the time, everywhere. That explains everything, especially why cops are always picking on black people for no reason whatsoever. And this, you know, and, and the message, the, the 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 idea now that I think the important idea is not that this thing is exists or is stupid, which it is, but it's not a theory anymore. It's an industry. This mm. is standard practice in grade schools, high schools. Forget colleges where it's a religion. This is something you. This is something that people teach in high, hundreds of school districts around the country. There's a guy named uh, he wrote the book Courageous Conversation. Uh, Glenn Rob, Doctor Glenn Robinson. That's the manual for this. That's the Bible for this. And the prescription is: Listen, we need more black teachers. Let's get rid of the white teachers because and and and, and, and you know racism is the cause of everything. And every once in a while, a parent or a teacher will come up to him at a seminar, and he, and they go, "Well, Doctor Robinson." I kind of noticed, you know, they're all very nervous about this. I kind of noticed that some of my black students are a little more rambunctious, maybe even violent. And Rob, and in the book, he, he says, that's the wrong question. The real que- the question is not why black students are more violent. The real question is why have Americans been so violent and racist to black people for the last 400 years? If your kid comes home from school and your kid knows who Emmett Till is, but not Ronald Reagan, your kid is in a class of critical race theory uh, presented as fact. This is the greatest lie of our generation, that black people are relentless victims. It's a lie, but it keeps getting repeated every day. I mean, what does every news story say when when they present this? Every day we see this story, every paper, every news, somehow black people are victims. When, when, you know, all I can tell you is that the evidence, every bit of evidence, as you were just saying, is, is not just a lie, it's a damaging lie. Well, it means that, and, and you know, two, two, of course, and you're, you're absolutely right to push back against this concept of the black community. Like this is a monolith of, of everyone who's the same because there's lots of different and often opposing threads of thought within black community. At the sort of the turn of the last century um, uh, after uh, slavery was at least to some degree ended, there were these two major thoughts in, in black intellectuals. And, and one was um, 
let's try and work through the political system to sort of gain reparations and 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 the otherwise let's let's reject political solutions and just work to improve our own communities as much as humanly possible and i think it's one of the great tragedies that um the former won out in many ways over the latter but there are blacks of course and and lots of people of good conscience saying even if there is huge white racism it, let's say that, and it doesn't seem to be budging because that's sort of the theory that, that no, it's a moving goalpost, right? No matter what you do, you're still a racist because it's got this platonic ideal of, of institutional, which means you don't even have to manifest it in any conceivable way. It's still there. You know, you um, know, you know y- y- as of yesterday, Hillary was talking about subconscious racism. Right. Sorry, you, no, you, no. you don't even have to be aware of it yourself. It's sort of like a demonic possession that leaves you with no memory, but it's yeah, always no. on. And... Um, it means that there, it's more of a challenge for dysfunctional black communities to look and say, okay, you could, even if you accept the white racism argument, you could say, okay, we're dealing with white racism. White people are like evil Siberian tigers. You know that, oh, did we just lose you? Are you back? I'm here. Oh, I'm sorry. Here. Sorry. Um, so it's evil, <clears throat> white people are just like evil Siberian tigers. They're just going to maul uh, blacks and and they're terrible. Okay, well then what you do is you 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 say okay, well what, what can we do given that there are these predators around? You know, you you build a fence, you you know whatever it is, you you sort of drive whatever. And so even if we were to accept the sort of racism argument, it would not preclude things that could be improved within the black community. Like I don't say uh, there are wolves in the woods, therefore I can eat crap food and not exercise. I mean, you would still have things that you could reform. And sort of my big concern is by, by putting the focus on everything external, even if we accept that the external racism is real, which I don't think it is particularly anymore, it does preclude a lot of self-reflection and it does preclude a lot of improvements that could occur within the black community. And of course, a lot of black leaders are saying exactly the same thing and saying, look, we have to focus on our own culture. Why do we have a culture that in many places in black communities venerate someone who shoots a cop as some sort of Star Wars-style rebel alliance hero, and the cop is just always the evil oppressor, even though the cop is the first person who's usually called when there's a problem in the black community with violence. There is something in the culture that could be addressed that would make things better, even if we accept all the white racism arguments. You know, Thomas Sowell says a racist is any conservative winning an argument with a liberal. (laughs) But, you know, so so as white people, we sit here and looking, examining our own hearts. We're trying to find that last molecule of racism that we can squeeze out, right? This is what white people do. But I will tell you that, it's and it's on the surface, if there's any racial resentment, hostility, and it's black on white, and we see it every day. I saw it yesterday in Washington, D.C. They had a bus full of rip real estate investors going th- going through southeast washington and uh some of the black lives matter crowd stopped the bus with a you know with all their t-shirts and they're saying this is a black lives matter crowd you're not coming into our neighborhood and stealing our homes they very much made it a black on white thing spike lee says this all the time just uh just a couple a couple months ago in, in brooklyn they had a, a new york city councilman a couple of college professors a couple of activists they were talking about how their neighborhood is being gentrified and how awful that is. And the worst, they, they said, well, what's the worst thing that could happen to your neighborhood? Or how do you, and the guy goes, well, yesterday I saw a white couple with a kid in a stroller pushing them down my neighborhood. And this was unbelievably bad. And everybody in the audience was twittering and clapping. We don't really 
you know, recognize this enormous amount of black on white hostility. Or if we do recognize it, we go, oh, well, it's justified. You know something? What is the message of South Africa today? We know that there's an enormous amount of, uh, of racial hostility directed at white people there. But the world has turned its back on South Africa by saying, you deserved it. That's how, and so I'm not really involved in the South African thing, but there is a message there because that's happening here too. When, when, when white people are victims of racial hostility or violence or taunting on some level, somebody is saying explicitly or implicitly, you deserve that for 400 years of racism. Yeah, no, I mean, we, um, we, we, we on my channel, we have a presentation, Truth About South Africa. And we've actually, uh, as a community, uh, the Freedom Aid Radio community, we've all chipped in and helped a guy, a white guy, get out of South Africa because he was just absolutely terrified of uh, for his life, uh, just, just being outside of his sort of razor-walled compound. Uh, it was a, a hugely terrifying thing. But, of course, that is not white-dominated, racial, imperialistic narrative feeding. And, therefore, you know, we, we move on, we step over the bodies, and there aren't even any anybody's because it's not part of the narrative and it's hard for me to avoid calling this idea i don't know if you can prove it empirically but um the democrats rely on the black vote quite quite considerably and this was back to lbj in the 60s when he implemented the welfare state basically he said we're going to now own the black vote for 200 years because we're going to try said and get these people dependent said on that in a much more vulgar the quote yes much slightly more, more of course uh, right um slightly slightly more vulgar uh, term but um so the people who are in the newsrooms are on the left and want the Democrats in power. And it seems to me that they're more political activists than any kind of objective reporters, because the more they can tell uh, the, the, the black victim, white racism narrative, uh, the more that the blacks, uh, I guess the theory is the more the blacks are going to vote for the Democrats, the more the Democrats are going to stay in power, which is why whenever there's an election cycle going on, you can be certain that some usually ginned up, you know, white guy murders black a baby kind of thing is going to go on, even though the reverse situations are generally ignored, because it gins up the sort of resentments of certain aspects of the black community, gets the sort of voting drive for Democrats. So they're really attempting to buy votes by crippling an entire community uh, of uh, capacities, significant capacities for advancement. And so it seems to me that it's more of a, the mainstream media has become more of a sort of pro-Democrat, anti-black political movement rather than any kind of objective reporting, because that's the only way that I can sort of fit in the, the general patterns into a cohesive whole. I don't, think we, I don't think it's possible to overstate the amount of panic in Democratic quarters that the black voters might not be as enthusiastic this time around. And so the Democratic politicians are lashing the black voters with all these stories, because if the black voters do not come out it's all over for the Democrats. The other night on TV, Joy Reid, she's a black reporter for NBC. And uh, she was saying, I think the panel was even shocked. And this is the first time I've ever heard this. She was saying the Democratic Party is a black party now. And everybody sat, just sat there and said, yeah, well, I guess that's hard to disagree with because it's true. Well, and – if you were, again, focused on empirical facts, you'd say, well, this has really been the case for, for quite some time. Exactly. Uh, the Democratic yeah. Party was, you know, the, the KKK was an offshoot of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party regularly pushed back against Republican drives for equality throughout the 19th and early 20th century. Incredibly racist party in its history. And I would argue that people say, oh, well, that flipped in the 60s. It's like, well, I don't know that it actually, I think the methodology changed. I don't think that the fundamental racism uh, in the Democratic Party fundamentally changed in any I mean, way, shape, or form. They it, just 
So I'm, I'm sorry, it didn't change because uh, pre 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 flip. Uh, the democratic view of black people is that they were not capable of handling themselves. They were weak. They were bad people. Post flip, you hear Hillary saying the same thing. It's like, I'm here to save you because you're not capable. You're weak. You're stupid. You know, don't worry. I've got it under control. I don't see any difference between those two points of view. Yeah, I mean, the affirmative action argument is basically you can't compete, so we have to force people to hire you. And how on earth is that ever supposed to do, instill self-confidence in any community? Um, and people say – and the argument, of course, that it is historical racism and slavery, that certainly has had effects. But we can look at other cultures throughout history that experienced a huge amounts of, of negative uh, environments. I mean, the Jews who fled Europe uh, under Nazism and, and they had been – you know, basically second class or third class or violently killed or discriminated against citizens in Europe for over a thousand years. Uh, when the uh, European Jews came to America, it took them four years to achieve income parity with whites. Uh, four years. And so even though, of course, there's anti-Semitism in, in um, white communities to some degree as well. So, you know, it's really, it's getting hard, I think, especially after two or three generations of white soul searching and let's try and do the best. And the Democrats who claim to have been in charge of the welfare, so to speak, to use the, the word in its double meaning, the welfare of black communities has been the responsibility of the Democrats that the blacks are voting for. And um, certainly now when we look at the crime rates, which had been going down for some time, you know, whether it's the Ferguson effect or some other thing, I assume it is the Ferguson effect. The fact that the Democrats have been in charge of the black communities, and in many ways, the black communities are getting worse and worse. And now, in particular, with the crime upspike that's happening and with manufacturing jobs leaving and the latter to the sort of lower to middle class uh, vanishing, which, you know, Donald Trump claims to be addressing. If the Democrats have been in charge of the black vote at some point, you know, the, and I think that's happening now, the black leaders and the intelligent black voters are saying, how are we doing now that we've been trailing after the Democrats for a couple of generations? You know, sorry, one long reasons, speech. I no, 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 was that was good. No, no, pretend no, no. there was a question in there somewhere. No, 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 and, and I, no go I know with exactly. That. that was a good. That was very pointed. Uh, you know, one of the reasons I don't do uh, solutions to this thing is because the Democrats have been saying the same thing for fifty years, and it never works. So the only answer is, well, let's do more of the same thing. It didn't work, and so now you see these guys in these big cities, and every one is like. You're you're coming up with the solution. No, we've already tried that a thousand different times in a thousand different places, and it doesn't work. And not one reporter is going to look at you and go, "Yeah, we already tried that. Does that doesn't work?" But they just they just pretend like nothing has ever happened before. All this is going to work with this crazy Rube Goldberg scheme with lots of moving parts. And Colin, you don't have any solutions. They, I hear that every day. My solution is my solution used to be complicated. I used to say, "Knock it off." That was very complicated. I've since reduced it by 66%. So my solution is now behave. <laughs> so I got it down to one word. You know, you right. mentioned now, something. Now I've got I thought, Austin Power teeth in my head. But yeah, that, yeah that, so that's what it know. was. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll so cut that in this. when you say that. Let me ask you this, Stefan. You know, you, you, you mentioned two words that are an everyday fact of life that nobody ever talks about anymore. Affirmative action. This, you know, just the other day, there was a story where the New York Times, the top editors, sent a, sent a memo out to their lower level editor saying, you will hire some black reporters or you will come in here and be judged for why you did not. And so the level of affirmative action and quotas on contracts and hiring all over the country, every level of government, every, every level, every shape of government is enormous. College admissions, enormous. The unfairness of it, enormous. The message of it, damaging. 
it's just part of our now it's just part of our culture now. I mean, kids, if you want to, if you have a white kid who wants to go to college, or eight, what about Asian kids? Good lord, you know, Asian kid wanting to go to the Ivy League. I don't know what you have to do to be an Asian kid to get into the Ivy League now because the SATs don't matter. The playing violin doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is if you grew up in a poor neighborhood and you got a 3.5 in some crappy school. I mean, it's astonishing some of these race-based decisions we're making so casually all the time. And everybody just now is just pretending that it's normal. So guess what? I, I'm, I'm here to say none of that's normal. Well, and, you know, we've got a lot of European listeners who do look across the pond and, and the racial, well, I guess they're going to have their own issues down the road with what's going on in Europe and the migrants and so on. But for those who don't know, um, there are a lot of schools, uh, higher education schools, universities, uh, unis, as they're called in England, uh, that um, will artificially inflate the SAT scores of blacks, uh, somewhat tinker with the white scores, but uh, significantly reduce Asian scores because Asian. I mean, score- when you say that, that is hard. I mean, I would not bl- blame anybody for looking at you and saying, "Stefan, you're making that up. You're 100 percent lying." I we'll mean, put we'll put the source in the in the low bar here. No, I'm with. Um, no, I understand. I, I, no, I just for the audience, so, who, for the audience who say that, you know, just look in the low bar. We've we've got all the stats. We've done all the reporting on it. But go ahead. No, isn't that hard to believe? You say it. I mean, it's like that can't be true. Of course, it, it is true. And it is so destructive for blacks to do that. I mean, first of all, they graduated far they, they graduate at far lower rates than, than whites and Asians. So they get into debt. They don't even graduate because they're not capable of performing the, uh, at the level uh, that the school requires. And secondly, those who do graduate, when, when a, a black person goes out into the marketplace with a degree from a university, the employer doesn't know if the black is as capable or is the result of affirmative action. And there's no objective way to know. In the past, a black comes out with a degree. You're like, hey, you are just the same as everybody else. So I've got no problem hiring you. But now it's really tough for employers because they don't know if the person got pushed through as a result of political correctness and doesn't have the same abilities. And so they're going to lean more towards hiring Asians, especially Asians who get those degrees because, man, you got to levitate. you got to be able to do telekinesis. You can walk on water because you actually made it through a university as an Asian. You got in. I mean, so it's actually slanting people, I would assume, more towards hiring Asians, which we can sort of see in Google stats, as opposed to hiring blacks, which is really, really destructive. And I think the smartest blacks now are looking at this and saying, college is not that valuable to me because nobody knows if I got through based on my own ability or based upon political correctness, affirmative action, and, you know, just sort of inflation of, of grades to get to, to hit the numbers. So it really has made university much less valuable for the smart and competent blacks, which again, our law of unintended consequences. How many times do we need to learn the same yeah. lesson? You know, here's the thing. So you're, you're, say you're a regular black person. Maybe you're a smart black person. You get into a college you don't belong in, Harvard, Princeton, whatever. What are your choices when you get there? You're going to study physics, math? No, you can't. I couldn't do that. They, average people can't go there. You're the only one choice left. You are now studying black resentment in the black studies department. That's your only choice. So instead of going to a place where you could thrive and prosper and get a degree where you can learn something, all you're learning is, I mean, when, when, when you see all the people at Yale, all the black people at Yale, hundreds of them out, out doing black lives matter. It's like, that's it. That's your, that's your thing. I mean, there's so many, there's so much damage on this race, this racial consciousness stuff. And I'm convinced it's really kind of a, a cancer. Well, you know, there are very specific delusions throughout history 
that lead to unbelievable conflict, and it is usually only after decades, sometimes longer, of unbelievable conflict that people do stuff like, hey, let's separate church and state because everybody fighting for control of the state for their own religious dogma is really, really destructive. And, uh, you know, maybe let's not have serfs. Uh, let's have some sort of free market and labor uh, because we're all starving to death. You know, like in the Middle Ages, 10 to 15 percent of the European population would starve to death because basically you had communism on the land, which produced about as much food as the kulaks under Stalin in, the, in Ukraine in the 1930s, where 10 million people died. So there are specific delusions that are usually inherited from history that produce incredible dysfunction. And for some reason, I, I, I may go to my grave not knowing why, but for some reason, uh, people, maybe because they're addicts to delusion, they will only examine their core delusions after an unbelievable amount yeah. of suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you mentioned uh, England and people in Europe watching this. What time I spent in Europe when I talked to people in Europe um, – Americans are very surprised to hear that the Europeans, you, you tell me if this is a correct observation. The Europeans often are kind of, lo- they kind of look down on us for our racial problems. Like I was just listening to NPR this morning. They said Obama is unbelievably popular in England. He's unbelievably popular in Ireland. And they think that black people are really, really you know, de- oppressed here. And they're very kind of smug about it. I, 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 I don't, I'm not sure why that is, but. Well, I mean, everybody um, conflates um, all, all the violence in America is just assumed to be part of the society as a whole. They say, oh, gun violence is is very, very huge and, and problematic in America. It's like not among East Asians. It's not. And not among, you know, white people in, yeah. in America have about the same murder rate as white people in Belgium, as yeah. white people all over the world. So what they do is they they take the the large amount of violence coming out of the black community and just conflate that to America and say, well, just American society as a whole is is this. And, of course, that's not even close to, to sort of factual. You know, I've written a lot about uh, – English and European tourists who come over here, especially New Orleans, and they all come over here and, and they, they believe this delusion that black people are nothing but victims of white racism. They get into New Orleans. They go into places they shouldn't go. They never come out. I mean, the amount of violence directed at these delusional white people from Europe is enormous in some places. Lambs to the slaughter, as they say. Now, let, let's close off with, with something else that is talked about quite a bit. Uh, and it is one of these narratives that you've talked about in your videos and in your books that, that is hard to push back against no matter how many facts you have. And that is the degree to which it is racism in police, courts, prison systems and so on that explains why blacks are so much um, more likely to end up uh, in prison than whites or, or Asians or whatever. So can you just step people through some of the logic that can help challenge that narrative yeah okay so that's the story right so there's six you know there's enormous amount of black people in prison way out of proportion and there's only one answer to that there's only one answer to that white people do it too but you don't get arrested and so my attitude is okay if white people are getting away with all this crime a where are the victims where are the videos where are the 911 calls where are the police reports where are the witnesses they don't, they don't exist on the other hand, if there are black people in prison who do not belong there, who were unjustly convicted, well, let's get them out. That's a legal thing. And you know what? I actually did a story. That's like the biggest story I ever wrote. I, got, I did a story that got a black person out of prison. 
name was I Kelvin remember Wiley. reading about that. This you know was what? early in your career, right? That wasn't a casual thing. It wasn't like 20 journalists chasing these. No, this was me going through trash cans, going to everywhere, finally saying, hey, that never happened and showing why. And so if, if there are innocent people in prison, let's get them out. That's a legal thing. That's not a political thing. But the fact is that, you know, over and over around the country now, we're seeing that people who run this country believe that, that, that black people, I mean, people, Republicans believe it. Rand Paul, John Kasich, Chris Christie, others, they believe that black people are in prison for no reason whatsoever except for white racism. So that means black people are getting released from prison earlier than they should. And now we see these horrific crimes against old people, young people, white, Asian, and the person's record is always, you know, longer than their arm. So there's a lot of really, you know, not just bad ideas. These are now dangerous ideas that are out there. Well, and, and there are ways to validate. The, you, you, people just wave this magic wand of racism and think they've answered something, which is sort of why it's religious in, in nature, or, or I guess astrology, mystical probably is a better way of putting it. Because what you can do is you can compare um, arrest records by race with complainants' identification of the perpetrators by race. And if, uh, you know, if, if people say, well, you know, it's only one in 10 crimes, do so they say it's a black person, but three in 10 times a black person is arrested, well, then there's a discrepancy which you'd need to explore. But of course, there's very few people who say um, they were mugged by, by a white guy, and then they go to the cops and say, a black guy mugged me. I mean, what would, what would be the point? I mean, it would be such a giant waste of time and energy and effort, and it would be pretty easy to, to figure out. And so that doesn't really happen. The, the race that is reported by the victim of crime, uh, the ratio of that to arrests is very close. Also, of course, is the National Crime Victimization Survey, which is done, uh, which asks people more informally and without, but, you know, have you been the victim and what was the race and so on. And that matches the arrest records. And so there are ways of actually trying to figure out um, whether or not racism is causing cops to disproportionately you know, um, Hillary, arrest blacks. Just the other day, Hillary and, and Bernie Sanders have used this too. Say black people and white people commit the same amount of crime. White people are arrested four times. Black people are arrested four times more often. That's all based on one story uh, about pot smoking, and you do. So, and, and it's all based on one thing: self-reporting. So you go to a bunch of white people and say, "Do you smoke pot?" And, and, and you go to black people, "Do you smoke pot?" And they answer the question in the, amount, the same amount. Well, John Hopkins and other journals, they do reports on self-reporting, and they're very explicit. They say, if you want to know the one, the, the one thing that throws off the self-reporting, the biggest indicator of deceit in self-reporting is whether the respondent is an African-American. So there's only one – if you come across a, te- a survey, a test about this, this, this crime thing, and, and if they're not – especially on drugs, if they don't test for drugs, if it's all self-reporting, it's not worth it anything i know that was kind of convoluted but it's actually no no that's but, what I mean, hillary and bernie are, are talking things. about yeah there are other facts as well which is um uh which ethnicity is more likely to smoke openly in the street versus in their basement uh that is the thing and also if i say to put out a survey which says have you ever driven drunk and as a couple you know a bunch of people write back and say yes it matters whether you do it every week or once in the last 20 years i mean have you ever smoked uh, marijuana is not the question which would tease out racism how often uh, how much do you do it in the open do you do it uh, in your basement uh, and and all of this is okay, is so, not so, so, taken so john into so john hopkins did a study where they tested self reporting 
for and but they but they had the uh, they they had the uh, the blood test. So they already knew the answer, and it turns out that six t- black people lied six times more often about their drug use than white people. They said they used the same amount, about equal, but when you tested six times more often, this study's been replicated many times. You know, here you know people always lie about stuff. You ask, you ask them about going to church. You go to church. Go, oh yeah. People lie about going to church. They followed people. They found out that like 50% of the people were lying about how often they go to church because if everybody was going to church, there'd be a million people in church, but nobody goes to church, but they say they do. Same with drugs. I, I just got that scene from Jaws. I think we're going to need a bigger church. Yeah. But uh, all right. So so I, I really, really appreciate the conversation and I recommend uh, that people read your work and and it's it's important stuff we we can't get any solutions unless we have an accurate perception of the facts and um this you know everybody wants a black community to do better but we can't do it by pretending that they don't have problems uh, as a collective to to use that uh, they don't have problems that they do have and uh, we need we to start you know if you, if you want to get out of the woods you at least need to know where you are to begin with and we can and we cannot do it if, as is happening today, we stay silent when black people are looking at us and going, Colin and Stefan, you're the problem. Your racism is the problem. White racism is by the way, all that stuff's off the table now. All the family, income, health, healthcare, schooling, all off the table. It's all white racism. I don't think I don't my, my guess is most people do not are not aware of how embedded that is now. Right. So uh, we'll put links to your books below, um, White Girl Bleed a Lot and Don't Make the Black Kids uh, Angry. And I know that that's just a sampling. You've got your blogs and articles and videos and so on. I uh, really appreciate the work that you're doing. Appreciate the time that you've taken with us today. And I hope we can talk again. Stefan, it has been an honor to be here with you and all the best to you in the future. Thank you.